the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I think I was just in my mind like, she's got to be out there and they've got to find her, you know, any any minute now. They're going to find her. She's probably just was outside playing and I've done that before. I've gone on, you know, little walks or chasing a cat or something like that. <laughs> like... They've got to find her. They'll find her. And I think it was, again, no one knew anything. It was more like this little girl's missing. we got to find this little girl. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter. And uh, it's a good day today. And that is because tomorrow, if you are a member of our Patreon, the First Degree Underground, you're finally getting our video content that we've been talking about. That we've been promising. (laughs) It's finally time. It's finally here. It's so good. And we're so excited to share it with you all. So if you're not a member of our Patreon, then now is the time. Now is the time. Our studio is almost done. We've got the cutest little neon signs. We've got so much cute shit. Yeah. And you can see um, our sincere responses to one another when we're... um, (laughs) disagreeing or agreeing. It is pretty good. You can kind of, you can see our facial expressions and how we, how we are responding to each other. It's very nice. Uh, we had so much fun. We recorded a few episodes of Killing Time that we'll have for you, uh, in video form. So I feel like that is our housekeeping for the day, right? Absolutely. Let's just go into the day then, right? So it is November 30th, Wednesday, and, uh, there are a lot of days today. One is National Mason Jar Day. I don't know who made that one. National Personal Space Day. Mm, I want everyone to honor this one. This is a great day. We should celebrate it every day. Also, National Stay at Home Because You're Well Day. I love that. Another personal space adjacent day. And Perpetual Youth Day. Those are the three that I chose that I really am resonating with today. All of those feel like that. I'm the one who's literally like, Jack, we all look like we're 20 (laughs) when I'm talking about us and our friends. And she's like, okay, Alexis. I'm like, no, for real though. Like I truly believe it. (laughs) Listen, I, I feel like I'm 20. So I I understand the perpetual youth. I've never felt more youthful than I do at 35 years old. So this is our day. We're going to celebrate it. I hope everybody else out there is celebrating it in one way or another. That's right. You know, I do feel like that is enough of that though. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. So, how do predators choose their victims? Sometimes, predators choose their victims opportunistically, when a predator strikes during the smallest opening, taking advantage of situations no one could have predicted. And sometimes, predators select their victims well in advance. They spend hours upon hours scheming and designing every detail of their evil plot, becoming the architect of someone else's demise. But other times, predators choose their victims at the chaotic intersection of impulse and planning. A predator has the opportunity, but not the victim. Or they have the victim, but not the opportunity. They could even lay the groundwork for several victims and patiently lay in wait for who knows how long. Preparing to attack any one of their potential victims as soon as the perfect window of opportunity at the perfect time presents itself. In fact, each of us may have been on a predator's radar, but we'd never know it. They chose another victim or the perfect opportunity never came. And the realization that you are so close to being harmed is unsettling. It's jarring. But that's how the universe's cosmic shuffling of the deck works. It's frustrating, it's random, and it can spare your life as easily as it can take it. Today's case begins on August 13th of 1994. So earlier that summer on June 12th, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were stabbed to death outside Nicole's condo in Los Angeles. A month later, OJ Simpson pled absolutely 100% not guilty to two counts of first-degree murder on July 22nd. 
Two of the songs at the time top on the radio were Stay, I Missed You by Lisa Loeb and Fantastic Voyage by Coolio, which is a slamming hit. So Honestly, good. so is Lisa Loeb's Stay. I know. Man, I mean, I think that's the song of the generations. It really was. So the top movie at the box office was Forrest Gump. And on August 5th, a truck containing 24 million honeybees overturned in New York, releasing all of them into a massive cloud of angry bees, which is crazy. And emergency workers couldn't calm the bees down. So they were forced to kill them with pesticides, which honestly is a travesty. We need to be saving the bees. That's right. But this is a true crime podcast. This is a true crime podcast. And the setting for today's case is Brighton, Iowa. Located in Washington County, Brighton is a small rural town in southeastern Iowa. And since it was established in 1840, Brighton has always been a tiny farming community. Today, Brighton has a population of about 600 people, one restaurant, one gas station, and one Dollar General. It's kind of the town where residents picnic in the park, churches host free Saturday suppers, and the grass is burned in the spring. And of course, in a small town like this, everyone knows everyone. And our first degree for today's case is named Rebecca. And in the 90s, Rebecca grew up about two miles outside Brighton. She lived on a farm with her parents and five siblings. I grew up actually outside of a really small town, probably two miles from Brighton, Iowa. Very small population, like not even a stoplight there. Rebecca's nearest neighbors were a sweet elderly couple named Dory and Lane Morgan. They lived across the cornfield from Rebecca's farm, and their grandson named Larry Lane Morgan used to live with them years ago. Larry had a really troubled childhood, so his grandparents, being the amazing people that they were, took him into their home and raised him like their own. And by this time, Larry was an adult, so he didn't live with his grandparents anymore. But he visited them often, especially since his son from a previous marriage lived in Brighton. And even though Rebecca's family and Larry's grandparents weren't friends, they were still friendly with each other. So Rebecca saw Larry around a lot when he ended up visiting. We were maybe like a quarter of a mile from where Larry Morgan was raised. And he was raised by his grandparents. So they were like our neighbors. So his grandparents were like one big cornfield over from us. We were close with, you know, one family that was on one side, but his grandparents, we weren't that close to. I mean, we'd wave to them when we drove by and all that stuff, but it wasn't like we hung out or anything. They were quiet, older. He was in his 30s and wasn't living there anymore. So they would have been, you know, in their 70s, you know, older when we were there. He lived like somewhere else and he would come back home because his ex-wife and his son lived in Brighton. So he would come back home quite often and then he would stay with his grandparents. And he knew a lot of people in town. So meanwhile, in the summer of 1994, Rebecca was living every seven-year-old's dream. She would play outside on her family's farm all day, come home to eat, and go straight back for more outdoor adventures. This was a time before smartphones and social media made it so challenging for people to get away from the screens. And it wasn't like Rebecca's parents didn't have a sense of safety when they let their kids romp around the farm by themselves. They were great parents, but this just was how the 90s were. And besides, what could possibly happen on their own property? And also, Rebecca's parents knew the names of every neighbor within a 10-mile radius. If their kids weren't safe here, they wouldn't be safe anywhere. We actually grew up on a highway, so it wasn't like a gravel road or anything, but we were surrounded by cornfields. Growing up, we played outside by ourselves all the time. We knew not to go to the road, right? <laughs> all those things. We had a big acreage, a big farm, and we were all over the place. So I was outside all day, and mom called us in for lunch, and then we went back outside all day. <laughs> you know, like after school, we were outside till dark, like playing. We did our own thing. As a young kid, I was definitely outside by myself all the time. My parents were very protective, but then also like not protective. But also we were outside all the time because it was, you know, the 1990s and we were on our own and stuff like that. I mean, I remember playing outside until it was dark when I was younger. It was just such a different time and everything really did seem so much safer in the 90s. And even when the one time that something weird did happen at Rebecca's house, nobody really seemed to be in any danger. So Rebecca and her family returned home from vacation to find out that their house had been burglarized. But here's the thing. The only thing that was missing 
Rebecca and her older sister's pajamas and their underwear. We went on a vacation and came home and our house had gotten broken into. And we looked and the only thing was missing was my pajamas and my like underwear. And then my older sister's, who was 14 or 15, her underwear and pajamas. Nothing else was missing. My parents did call the police. And at that time, there were some kids who had run away from home in the like area. And so the police assumed that it was just these kids like looking for clothes because nothing else was taken. So that never brought anything, but it, it always bothered my dad. Okay, so the police are trying to figure out what's going on, but why do these runaway kids only need pajamas and underwear? How strange. It seems like they would have taken food, jackets, or, I don't know, flashlights, more practical items. Something wasn't really right here. And Rebecca's dad knew it. And then his concerns were validated when their house was broken into yet again. And then we went on a vacation later, like two months later, Again, our house got robbed. My pajamas and my clothes were taken, just pajamas and underwear. And then my mom's jewelry was taken. So nothing else again, told the police. They didn't think much of it. But the second break-in was the last break-in. So everything proceeded as normal for Rebecca and her family in the town of Brighton. Until one day in August, a little girl went missing. Her name was Anna Maria Emery, and she was nine years old. Initially, no one thought Anna Marie was in any danger. Everybody figured that she'd taken a walk into her cornfield and lost her way. This time of year, the corn stalks were taller than most people, and it would really be super easy for a little, small child to get turned around in the field. Rebecca remembered the search parties passing in front of her house, and her parents helped look for Anna Marie as well. I didn't do this because I was young, but I remember them all like lining up even outside of our house in the cornfields and everybody held hands and walked through the cornfield. So you wouldn't miss or anything. And so the corn was still tall. So it would have been, you know, August. They were still thinking like, oh, did she go for a little walk in the cornfield or something like that? Like it was still a big hunt for an alive missing girl. But four days passed and the search parties found no sign of Anna Marie. I think I was just in my mind, like, she's got to be out there and they've got to find her, you know, any, any minute now they're going to find her. She's probably just was outside playing. And I've done that before. I've gone on, you know, little walks or chasing a cat or something like that. (laughs) Like they've got to find her, they'll find her. And I think it was, again, no one knew anything. It was more like this little girl's missing. We got to find this little girl. But they didn't find her. Little Anna Marie had disappeared without a trace. And we're all left wondering the same crucial questions. What happened to Anna Marie? Where had she gone? Did someone take her? Who and why? And most importantly, was Anna Marie safe? And to answer all of these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. On Friday, August 12th, 1994, nine-year-old Anna Marie and her five-year-old brother were spending the weekend with their uncle Robert at his home in Brighton, Iowa. Anna Marie's parents, Tony and Peggy, were celebrating their 10th wedding anniversary by getting dinner in Iowa City, which was 42 miles away. Tony told the Grinnell Herald Register that the trip to Iowa City was this really extra special one for them because he and his wife were picking out wedding rings. When Tony and Peggy first got married, they were so poor that they had to use fake ones. So Tony ended up saying, I promised Peggy after 10 years of marriage, she could pick out a diamond of her choice. So this was a big weekend we had planned years ago. And it was also Tony's 32nd birthday the next day. So it was kind of this double celebration for the couple. Yeah. And that sounds like an amazing weekend. And I'm also balking that they're only 32. Whenever I hear of Peggy and Tony, I'm like, yeah, 65. And uh, 10 year wedding anniversary. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness. You've been married since you're 22. (laughs) Ooh, I started sweating. You have to know, though, if they've been married for 10 years, they're this young, they're obviously still super in love, and that sounds like an amazing weekend. And normally, when Anna Marie's parents needed a babysitter, Anna and Marie and her brother would stay with their grandparents, Shelby and Fred, who also lived in Brighton, Iowa. But their grandparents were leaving for a vacation that Sunday, just a little too soon for Anna Marie's parents to enjoy their weekend getaway. But that was okay, 
because Anna Marie and her brother were thrilled to spend time with their beloved Uncle Rob and play with him and hang out with him. And he had a hot tub, which they thought was super fun. Pretty cool. And Robert really did his best to spoil the heck out of his niece and nephew. He loved them. So on that Friday night, he invited over his other brother, also lived in the area. His name's Uncle Chuck and Chuck's kids. So this would be Anna Marie and her brother's cousins, first cousins. So then Robert and Chuck, they set the kids up with lots of pizza and movies. And the movies they watched were Mr. Nanny and Rookie of the Year. And they all just had like a family hang, cousins and uncles. It really sounds like a great start to an amazing sleepover. And this was actually the second time that Anna Marie and her brother had ever spent the night away from their parents. So I'm sure they were super excited. It was super special. Like what a fun night. And after this night of amazing fun with their uncle, Chuck and his kids left and Robert kissed Anna Marie and her brother goodnight at around 1230 in the morning. Since Robert's one-story house was really small, the two kids slept in the living room. Anna Marie was on the couch and her brother slept on the floor next to her. So later in the night, Robert ended up getting up to use the bathroom and he noticed that Anna Marie wasn't on the couch anymore, but he kind of just assumed that she climbed into a sleeping bag and she was on the floor with her brother. But when Robert woke up the next morning at around 6 a.m., Anna Marie was gone. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Anna Marie Emery was born on June 3rd of 1985 in Fairfield, Iowa. She had long brown hair and blue eyes. And even though Anna Marie was only nine years old, her personality was fully developed. She was an independent girl with a playful spirit. She loved taking care of her dolls. She loved going to the park, playing basketball with her brother, fishing with her grandfather, and writing stories. And her favorite color was purple, but she also really liked pink. Her parents moved their small family to Grinnell, Iowa in 1989, when Anna Marie was about four years old. There, Anna Marie and her brother went to Davis Elementary School. Anna Marie was preparing to enter the fourth grade at that fall semester, and her teachers described her as the ideal student hardworking, kind, considerate, and a really good friend to her classmates. And Anna Marie was close with her neighbors in Grinnell as well. She always made it a point to visit them. One neighbor who was a retired policeman said that Anna Marie visited him so often that he gave her the nickname Sweet Petunia because of her gentle nature, which is so cute. So cute. Ugh. Another neighbor who was a widowed woman said that Anna Maria and her brother would draw her pictures every single day. And many other neighbors remembered how Anna Marie liked to put her cat Fluffy in a baby carriage so that she could take Fluffy on strolls down the sidewalk. That is so cute. So cute. 
And no matter who you ask, everyone said that Anna Marie's parents loved her and her little brother more than anything else in the entire world. Her father was a long-distance truck driver, and her mom would stay home with the kids while her husband was gone for work. And Tony and Peggy Emery married in August of 84 when Tony was 22 and Peggy was 20. So our math earlier was right, which is why they were celebrating their 10th wedding anniversary the weekend of August 12th of 94, while Tony's brother Robert was babysitting for them. But what should have been a joyful weekend was quickly becoming worrisome. On the morning of Saturday, August 13th, Robert Emery was frantically searching for his nine-year-old niece. After turning his house inside out without any sign of her, he was really starting to get really fucking panicked. He called his mom and asked if Anna Marie had walked to her house, but she hadn't. And Anna Marie's five-year-old brother, who had been fast asleep next to her the night before, had no idea where his sister was either. Robert knew Anna Marie hadn't gone back to her parents' house because Grinnell, Iowa was 86 miles away. And in Robert's desperate hunt for Anna Marie, the only clue that he found was that his screen door had been removed from its tracks and placed outside his house. Only an hour and a half after Robert discovered Anna Marie was missing, he called the police at 7.30 a.m. And with just a few hours of her being missing, a small army of several hundred volunteers swept all of the cornfields, ditches, rivers, and abandoned buildings in Brighton and the surrounding areas. Anna Marie's grandparents' house became the headquarters for volunteers to mobilize. And their searchers were instructed to look for a brown-haired, blue-eyed little girl who was four foot five inches tall and weighed about 65 pounds. She was last seen wearing a purple nightshirt and matching shorts, but no shoes. And later, Anna Marie's father told reporters that the pajamas were actually his wife's. But Anna Marie had started wearing them to show that she was growing up to be a big girl. That is so heartbreaking. So right from the jump, it felt like everyone in southeastern Iowa and beyond was invested in finding Anna Marie safe and sound. People and organizations came from all over to help. The Iowa City Search and Rescue Teams, the Brighton Fire Department, the Washington County Rescue Squad, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, and countless others joined forces to search for Anna Marie. Searches traveled on foot, they rode horseback, and drove off-road vehicles to painstakingly comb any location where Anna Marie might have wandered off to. Trained search dogs were sent down rivers and other bodies of water near Brighton to sniff out clues. And more than 5,000 fluorescent pink and orange missing children flyers with Anna Marie's photo were passed out and taped to every major street sign within 50 miles. 80% of the truckers who worked with Anna Marie's dad helped in the search. The entire company pitched in. This sounds like such an amazing effort from the community and their support system. Truckers from other companies also helped and put Anna Marie's posters on their rigs. Anna Marie's father's employer even offered $5,000 reward for information leading to Anna Marie's safe return. As awful as this is, it's incredible to see communities come together like this. I know. It really is. And the search efforts didn't stop there. That Saturday night, a Cedar Rapids Police Department helicopter used infrared heat-seeking lenses to try to find Anna Marie in the dense cornfields and other wooded areas. And both the Polly Kloss Foundation and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children helped law enforcement spread Anna Marie's information across the country. They put her poster on an online forum for missing children where it could receive up to 20 million views. And they also sent her poster to 44 state missing persons clearinghouses and many law enforcement agencies across the Midwest. They even sent President Bill Clinton Anna Marie's photo in hopes of increasing the nation's awareness of her disappearance. But by Sunday night, 48 hours after Anna Marie was reported missing, nobody had found a single clue beyond Robert's dismantled screen door. Her parents were so desperate, they called a psychic who predicted Anna Marie would be found near a baseball park. Needless to say, their predictions didn't pan out. The Brighton Fire Chief and Head Search Coordinator told the Des Moines Register and the Gazette, We don't have anything to go on. I'm serious. Nothing. I don't want to sound too negative, but our hearts are sinking. This stuff doesn't happen in a small town, and we're not sure how to handle this. Imagine if this is what, if your child was missing and that's what they said. It's like, oh my God. It's not looking good for us to solve this. Like, oh my God, I would be freaking out. I would be freaking out. So luckily, the next day, the FBI got involved, which is huge. They have resources, obviously, that small departments do not. But even then, the search for Anna Marie continued to be fruitless. And Anna Marie's grandfather told the Des Moines Register, it's like somebody snapped their fingers and she disappeared. It was truly as if Anna Marie had vanished into thin air. 
After three days of searching with nothing to show for it, Anna Marie's family was devastated. Her mother, she couldn't sleep and she couldn't eat. And later she was admitted to the hospital for dehydration and exhaustion. I just like can't even imagine being her mom. Beside myself, totally. Her father was convinced that Anna Marie was abducted by somebody that was close to the family. And this actually made a lot of sense since there is no sign of a struggle in Robert's living room and her little brother hadn't even woken up to see her leave. So from where the police were sitting, it was looking likely that Anna Marie had probably left willingly with someone she trusted to some degree. And while other organizations continued looking for Anna Marie, local investigators focused their attention on interviewing possible witnesses, like Anna Marie's dad. The police wondered if someone who knew Anna Marie had kidnapped her, and how could you know a child through their parents? They were highly suspicious of Anna Marie's uncle, the caretaker that night, 29-year-old Robert Emery. And honestly, he really is the most obvious suspect since Anna Marie was literally at his house. And when Robert reported Anna Marie missing, he agreed to let the police search his home. And this is when they found something that was kind of unexpected. In Robert's trash, investigators discovered a condom-covered corn cob. Yeah, you heard that right. A condom-covered corn cob. And this is definitely weird and kind of looks suspicious. Yes. And for some context, if anyone was wondering, like I was, I had to read that five times to understand, it's like a makeshift sex toy Yeah, for people, and especially men who fear retribution for wanting to explore their sexuality, ordering a toy online and having it delivered to their home is not something they feel safe to do. Yeah. So this is an example of that. This is what this person was doing. But we're in rural Iowa, okay? So- they're suspicious and they're like, you know what? We're dragging your ass in. You were the last person, so you obviously had opportunity. Not sure about motive, but certainly the means. And now there's a corn cob in the trash. So we're coming in for questioning. And they questioned him and pressed him for 11 long hours. He was also subjected to a polygraph exam. And when it was all said and done, they cleared him. Because even beyond that, Robert was not only adamant that he'd only use this homemade sexual device on himself, he told police that they were going to find it before the search happened. He had this fear, like, I'm going to let you search my house and please don't screw me over because this might look bad and I'm trying yeah. to be do the right thing here, right? He knew this would implicate him to some degree in a closed mind, you know, a hypothetically closed mind, right? But he still didn't try to hide it. And he claimed his only concern was his niece's well-being. So if it's not Robert, then who abducted Anna Marie? Well, while questioning Robert, the police clarified his timeline of events that Friday night. And when doing so, they noticed a person who could have been involved in Anna Marie's disappearance. 33-year-old Larry Lane Morgan. According to Robert, at around 9.15 p.m. Friday evening, his buddy Larry unexpectedly stopped by. Right. And Larry had brought his eight-year-old son, Robbie. And this is a great situation, right? Because Anna Marie, her brother, her cousins are there. So eight-year-old Robbie joins in and they all start eating pizza and watching movies together. And it's like, okay, we've got some guys hanging out. Our kids are all occupied. Sounds like a great situation. Because Anna Marie's dad and uncles had grown up alongside Larry in Brighton. They all attended the same high school. So Larry was kind of like a family friend. And as an adult... Larry became a carpenter, and he often did work for the Emery family. Even recently, he'd done some carpentry work for Anna Marie's grandparents. And a while before that, Larry had even helped remodel Robert's house, including installing Robert's screen door. That's right. The same screen door that was carefully taken apart the night Anne Marie vanished. Larry Lane Morgan was born on August 4th, 1961 in Washington, Iowa to his father, Gary, and mother, Claudine. He was an only child. And as we've mentioned before, Larry's parents really struggled. So Larry's grandparents raised him in Brighton, Iowa. Larry Lane Morgan was actually named after his grandfather, Lane Morgan, who was a well-liked and widely respected insurance salesman. While living in Brighton, Larry graduated from Washington High School in 1979. His high school classmates described Larry as pretty decent when he was going to school, but they also said that as an adult, Larry was known to be an angry drunk. He would get in bar fights, and one time he drunkenly threatened a person with his gun. On March 9th of 1984, Larry married a woman named Elizabeth Brinning. Together, they had their son Robbie on December 10th of 1986. 
Sometime after Robbie's birth, the two divorced, and Elizabeth remarried the Brighton Fire Chief, who would later lead the search for Anna Marie. Right, but years before Anna Marie went missing, Larry worked at the manufacturing company called Fansteel, and this was in the early 90s. And that's where he met his second wife, Iva Sue Bogus. And that is a real name, Iva Sue Bogus. They married in 92 and had a baby girl two years later. And Larry, Iva Sue Bogus, their daughter, and Iva Sue Bogus's two children from a previous marriage all lived together in Iva Sue Bogus's parents' house in Alexandria, Missouri. I'm sorry. I say that so much, but it's just such a name. <laughs> so they'd moved in together because they wanted to be closer to Ivasu's parents. And while Larry's home in Alexandria is 75 miles away from Brighton, it's only six miles away from Cuke, Iowa, where Larry owned his own contracting business. And Ivasu Bogus took care of the kids as a stay-at-home mom. People described Larry as a friendly neighbor and a generally pretty nice person. He was the kind of unassuming guy that you might have a few beers with occasionally. Larry's brother-in-law said that Larry wasn't problematic, but that he also wasn't someone that he was good friends with. And one of Larry's former co-workers from Fansteel Manufacturing explained that Larry was quiet but quick to anger. When he was upset with the machines at Fansteel, Larry would throw things. Some of Larry's acquaintances corroborated Larry's hot temper, adding that he was also having marriage troubles. Right. And it seemed like every person who knew Larry didn't know Larry well. Even the residents of Brighton, where Larry grew up, said that since he moved in and out of the state so frequently, he was kind of an outcast. And some Brighton citizens thought he was creepy and hard to like. But despite all the misgivings about Larry, he had maintained a good relationship with the Emery family, especially with Robert. So it wasn't like Larry was some party-crashing stranger when he stopped by Robert's place that night on August 12th. He was Robert's longtime friend. And according to our first-degree Rebecca... Larry had even attended Anna Marie's parents' wedding. So, of course, Larry and Robert popped open a few beers while Larry's eight-year-old son, Robbie, hung out with Anna Marie and the other Emery cousins. And Anna Marie's other uncle, Chuck, left with his kids around 10.30 p.m. But Larry and Robbie stayed and hung out for a bit longer. Larry wasn't in town so often. He was just picking up his son from his ex-wife's house for a weekend visitation. So Robert and Larry spent an hour or so chit-chatting and downing a couple of six-packs. Later that night, Anna Marie and her brother became tired. So Anna Marie asked Robert and Larry to leave the living room since that's where they were sleeping because she wanted to go to bed. So this was Larry's cue to head out. But Robert was concerned that Larry was too drunk to drive, so he offered for Larry to stay at his house that night. Even though Larry had drank 11 beers and a shot of schnapps within the past five hours, he declined. Although Larry knew he couldn't pass a breathalyzer test, he told Robert he wasn't so drunk that he couldn't make it 75 miles to Alexandria, Missouri, which was his home. So at around 12.15 a.m., Larry and Robbie got in his truck and he drove off. And after Anna Maria was reported missing, police questioned Larry twice. First on Saturday morning and a second time a few days later. Both times, Larry told the authorities that he left Robert's house, took Robbie to his Alexandria home, and that was the end of it. Eight-year-old son, Robbie, who was about to enter third grade, told the police officers that his father's story was correct. They'd gone straight home after visiting Robert Emery's house. And it seemed like Larry's alibi was airtight. Until suddenly it wasn't. In the summer of 1994, the police were grasping at straws trying to find missing nine-year-old Anna Marie Emery. She disappeared in the early hours of Saturday, August 13th, while spending the weekend with her uncle Robert. The only clue was that Robert's screen door was removed. After four days of unsuccessful searches with hundreds of volunteers, specialized canine units, and even helicopters, the police realized Anna Marie had been abducted. Initially, they suspected Anna Marie's uncle Robert of kidnapping her, but he was quickly cleared. So five days after Anna Marie went missing, investigators weren't so sure where to turn. They received 12 to 18 calls every hour from people as far away as Nevada trying to provide information about Anna Marie's location, but there were just no solid leads. The police were frustrated that their efforts didn't seem to be paying off. Out of options and desperate for a break in the case, local law enforcement asked 33-year-old Larry Lane Morgan to take a polygraph test to clear himself of any involvement with Anna Marie's disappearance. So even though Larry had already been interviewed twice, he agreed. 
And on Wednesday, August 17th, law enforcement officers transported Larry to Cedar Falls, Iowa for a polygraph test. So while preparing for this test, Larry started becoming, let's just say, very agitated. He was so agitated, in fact, that the officer conducting the test wasn't sure they'd be able to get an accurate reading because his heart rate and his stress and anxiety was all over the place. So Larry took several breaks to smoke a cigarette, uh, to try to calm down, trying to procrastinate until eventually an officer approached him to see what was wrong. So Larry told the officer he was distrustful of the machinery inside the polygraph equipment, and he was worried that he'd be given the third-degree burns with the bright lights. (laughs) Unclear. I was going to say he might have a point with the validity of the test, but where he's going with this, I'm not sure. Should have stopped. Totally. Larry also said some of the officers made him nervous and uncomfortable. And after hemming and hawing for literally hours, Larry finally returned to the examination room and said, let's just get it over with. But when Larry was just about to start the lie detector test, he refused to take it. After some discussion, the law enforcement officials decided to question Larry without the polygraph equipment. And understandably, Larry's shifty behavior had made them suspicious. At 6.15 p.m., a special agent began asking Larry about Anna Marie's disappearance, and he gave Larry hypothetical situations to respond to. One of those situations was like, what would Larry do if GPS showed his truck near Brighton later than Larry had originally told investigators that he was there? And what would Larry say if a neighbor had seen him in Robert Emery's yard after he said that he'd left that night? The special agent also asked Larry if he had sexually assaulted Anna Marie because he wasn't satisfied with his own wife. And at this point, Larry was pretty rattled. He knew he was a suspect, and he told the officers, I know I'm under arrest. Nobody contradicted him. He was given a Mountain Dew and an ashtray at his request, and at 6.40 p.m., less than 30 minutes after the interview began, Larry confessed to taking Anna Marie from Robert Emery's home, raping her, and killing her. It's so disturbing and really sad. So if any of you struggle with certain aspects of crime, feel free to fast forward 30 seconds or so, but the confession is disturbing. So in Larry's confession, he reiterated that he left Robert Emery's house around 12, 15 a.m. with his son, Robbie. But this time, Larry didn't go straight home. This time, Larry said he drove 17 miles away to a convenience store called Old's and bought a soda. Then he drove back to Robert's home at about 2 a.m. with the purpose of kidnapping Anna Marie. He took apart Robert's screen door and snatched Anna Marie while she slept. And he told officers that he couldn't resist abducting Anna Marie because she looked so pretty just lying there. He put Anna Marie in his truck and drove towards his home in Alexandria. Then he pulled over at Tickridge Park, removed Anna Marie from the truck, took off her clothes, and tried to assault her. But Anna Marie wasn't cooperative, so Larry put her back in his truck. He drove towards his home in Alexandria for a while before pulling over to another park and trying to do the same. But this time, he succeeded. When he was done, he put Anna back in the truck. And at that point, Larry realized that Anna had recognized him. He couldn't just return Anna Marie to Robert's house because she would tell her family and the police that he'd hurt her. So Larry stopped on a gravel road beside a cornfield near Houghton, Iowa, and he threw Anna Marie in a ditch and tried to break her neck by hitting her extremely hard. When that didn't work, he pulled out a seven-inch hunting knife and stabbed Anna Marie in the chest 20 times. Yeah, it's it's sort of unthinkable. And for people who could never live with themselves if they made a child cry, it's hard to believe that people like this exist, but they do. So Afterwards, Larry drove to his old house in Warsaw, Illinois, which was just a few miles away. And on the way there, he threw the knife that he used out the window of his truck. When he arrived at this old house, he disposed of evidence, the pajamas she was wearing in a trash can. Then he drove home to his wife and children in Alexander, Missouri. Larry's wife, Iva Sue, was angry at him because Larry was supposed to have been home with Robbie by 11 p.m. the night before. Instead, he arrived in Alexandria around 9.30 a.m. Saturday morning. Yeah, you heard that right. Eight-year-old Robbie had been in the truck the entire time that Larry had done this and was hurting Anna Marie. And we need to remember this because it becomes very, very important later on in our story. So during his confession, Larry told the investigators, I'm the only one who can take responsibility for Anna Marie's death. 
He also said that he kidnapped her because he wanted to be close to somebody who cared that night, which is fucking – it's, it's – everything you is were so sick. disgusting. So after raping and killing Anna Marie, Larry's life returned to normal. So great for him. In fact, when Anna Marie's father even called Larry to help join the search in Brighton the next day, Larry replied, sure, I'd do anything for a friend. When he saw her father's distress during the searches for his daughter, Larry put his arm around him and said, I'm praying for you, man. In between helping out with the searches for Anna Marie that weekend, Larry found the time to take his family to a sweet corn festival. So nice. That Sunday, he took his son Robbie home to his ex-wife and her husband at around 10 p.m. And on Monday, Larry proceeded as he normally would and fixed his in-law's roof. He seemed to just be living his life up like he normally was. NBD. Nothing is distressing him at all. Nothing's NBD. going on. No, no, like no problems. Feeling no, good. No probs. And uh, since Robbie had supported Larry's original story, nobody had any clue that Larry was to blame for Anna Marie's disappearance. During his confession, Larry used a map to show the authorities where they could find Anna Marie's body near Houghton, Iowa. As law enforcement tried to find her, maps were faxed back and forth between Larry's location in Cedar Falls and the sheriff's office in Brighton. But the police wouldn't find her based on Larry's directions alone. So on the night of Wednesday, August 17th, Larry was driven 150 miles to this area to help search. And with his help, they finally were able to discover Anna Marie's body at 12.15 a.m. on Thursday, August 18th, six full days after she'd been reported missing. I mean, her poor parents. The fact that he made them suffer that long is is awful. And she was not clothed. She was bloodied and she was unburied. Larry also helped the police find the murder weapon. And there's a special place in hell for this dude. Hours before Anna Marie's body was found on Wednesday evening, her parents held a televised news conference where they begged Anna Marie's kidnappers to release her. Her mom told the reporters she deserves a chance to come home and finish her school and be with her family and the people who love her. And as soon as they found her, authorities arrested 33-year-old Larry Lane Morgan on first-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping. He was held on a million dollars bail. He should have also been arrested for child endangerment of his own child. Like, yeah, that in its own, I mean, the empathy I have for that child, there are no words. Oh my God. I know. I mean, there isn't enough fucking life sentences for this guy. No, it's just such an unsettling crime because these predators do hide in plain sight. So the state medical examiner conducted Anna Marie's autopsy and her body was so badly decomposed that they had to use dental records to verify her identity. Once Anna Marie was successfully identified, the Emmy confirmed that she had been stabbed in the chest 20 times. The most harmful stab wound had passed all the way through her left lung and punctured her heart. And when testifying, the medical examiner said that the state of Anna Marie's body was truly heinous. The crime scene was so gruesome that the police department provided their investigators counseling. I think that this is sick. I don't know how anybody could do that to a child. Your stomach just turns when you think that somebody could do that to just a child. It's unbelievable that it could happen around here. Anna Marie's murder rocked the Brighton community. They were in complete shock. Before this, Brighton was the type of town where murder only happened on TV. People didn't lock their doors. Parents let their kids go outside by themselves to play or pick up a candy bar from a local convenience store. But after Anna Marie's murder, the parks were empty because no parent wanted to let their children out of their sight. One Brighton resident told the Gazette, it's one of those things you see on the news and say it'll never happen to you. And then bang, it does happen. The Brighton Sheriff also spoke with the paper, saying everybody feels violated. Their small-town trust of life and friends is gone. Because imagine the betrayal of Anna Marie's father. This was a, a high school friend. Yeah. The manager of the store where Larry stopped to get a soda before he went back for Anna Marie was also racked with guilt. He said, You kind of wonder if we hadn't been open if he'd have gone home. If you could just understand why somebody does something like that, but you'll never understand. And our first-degree Rebecca's family also felt so confused, upset, and rattled by this tragedy. You can go down a rabbit trail with, like, the mental part of all this, and I think it's just, it's so disturbing. I think it was, you know, devastation that this man right next to us could do such a thing, you know, in our tiny little community. And my mom will even say now, like, you don't think of this in Iowa, you know, population, nothing that this can happen. And especially within a mile's radius that this can happen, that this person was staying. 
Anna Marie's parents, Tony and Peggy, certainly didn't expect this to happen in Brighton either. When they learned that the police had found Anna Marie's body, they were obviously heartbroken. Again, I can't even imagine. Tony and Peggy held an emotional televised news conference on the front lawn of Anna Marie's grandparents' home in Brighton. In the back of the conference, you can see purple and pink ribbons tied to trees. The community had put up the ribbons everywhere to show their support for Anna Marie's safe return home. And her father, Tony, thanked everybody and said, at least I'm going to be bringing her home. I'm not going to wonder where she's at. Hang on to your kids like it's your last minute with them. And all of I agree for Anna Marie. And it was even worse because Larry wasn't some evil, unknown stranger. He was a friend of Anna Marie's parents and uncles. They had invited him into their home for years. They treated him like family, and he betrayed them all. Well, he always seemed like a really nice guy. He seemed very family-oriented. I always seen him riding bikes with the kids, and then he always played with my kids and kids in town over at the ballpark. It's got to be scary now looking back. Yeah, real scary. Tell me about it. Well, my kids were over there just about every day, or their children were over here, so they were around him quite a bit, and it just really shocked me to find out something like this and it scared me knowing that my kids were around him as much as they were it's just horrible something like that would happen in this small of a town where everybody knows everybody and everybody's family or you assume they're family even though larry had confessed and led the police to anna marie's body and showed them the murder weapon this case was far from over Anna Marie's disappearance had received a huge amount of publicity and for weeks it was on the front page of every newspaper in iowa And as a result, the trial was a complete media circus. When it began on January 3rd of 1995, news trucks lined the blocks and journalists crowded the courtroom. And the case gained even more notoriety as soon as Larry Lane Morgan took the stand because he testified that his prior confession was completely false. That's a bombshell. He denied kidnapping, sexually assaulting, and stabbing Anna Marie. When asked why he confessed, Larry explained that the law enforcement officials questioning him had drugged him with a memory-altering substance when he asked for a couple Tylenol for a headache. And when asked how he was able to lead police to Anna Marie's body if he wasn't responsible and also to the knife that was used to kill her, he said he doesn't remember doing those things at all. Larry said, I felt very spaced out, if that's the right word, for several days. Which is a fucking load of bullshit. In court, the investigators who questioned Larry said that he was never given any pills, Tylenol, or otherwise. But without Larry's confession, all the prosecution had was circumstantial evidence. But luckily, they had a surprise witness up their sleeve. And to protect that person's emotional well-being, the judge ordered that all cameras be banned from the courtroom. When the cameras were removed, Larry's son, Robbie, who was only nine years old, was walked into the courthouse while wearing a ski mask to protect his identity. And originally, Robbie lied in his police interviews because Larry told him, you can't tell anybody this because if you do, they'll put dad in prison and they'll kill dad and you'll never see dad again. Like, fuck that guy. So manipulative and evil. So in court, little Robbie removed his ski mask, took the stand and explained what really happened on the night of Friday, August 12th. So after leaving Robert Emery's home a little past midnight, Robbie fell asleep in Larry's truck. And when he awoke, Robbie saw Anna Marie between him and his father. After that, Larry stopped the truck three times. We know what happened. I don't want to say it again. But he did recall that she was asking to go home. She looked sad. She was crying. She wanted to go back. He recounted what he saw that night, that one second Anna Marie was there crying and the next she wasn't. He saw his father disposing of her body. He's even more disgusting for traumatizing his son in this way. It's it's devastating. And can you imagine the courage that it takes for this poor, traumatized nine-year-old boy to testify against his father? So the media obviously treated Robbie as this young hero, and he definitely was. During the same summer Anna Marie was kidnapped and killed, our first-degree Rebecca was around Anna Marie's age. And she lived just a cornfield away from Larry's grandparents' house where he regularly stayed. It's all so jarring because Rebecca's family had several alarming stories about Larry as well. Like when a handyman was doing some maintenance on Rebecca's house, Larry just stopped by without warning just to visit. Just like he had at Robert Emery's house the night that Anna Marie was kidnapped. But Rebecca's dad knew immediately that Larry was up to no good. We had a guy hired that was like fixing our house. And then that man, Larry Morgan, came over one day while that man was working and just was talking to him like he was doing some repairs on a window. 
and he just pulled in and started talking to him. And then my dad came home from work and he's like, Hey, who are you? And he introduced himself and it just happened to be like the end of the day. So the guy that was working on our house was taken off too at the same time as that man was taken off. And my dad just said something to him like, Hey, I don't like this guy. There's something about him. Like, I don't want you to have him over when I'm not here or things like that. Just so you know, I don't know if he just knew you from town and just like saw your truck and popped in and wanted to say hi, but at our house, I don't want him over. That's incredibly chilling. Larry was clearly doing some recon for maybe other possible victims. And do you remember when Rebecca's house was robbed while her family was on vacation? Only Rebecca and her sister's pajamas and underwear were stolen. But Rebecca's dad, he was certain that Larry was responsible for that too, because a trail of clues led right to Larry's front door. Our house had gotten broken into, and the only reason we knew it is because there were mud prints upstairs in our girl's bedroom. It always bothered my dad because we didn't have mud around our place. Like, we always laid gravel down. You know, you wouldn't park your car or step through a mud hole to go into the house. So it always bothered him that there was mud in our house. So we went out to the cornfield, and he actually found tracks that next day that led to the Morgan's house, that family, like his grandparents. He told the police that too. Nothing happened. And again, we can't ever prove that he did that. It's so messed up. Like, why would you leave your mud footprints there? Why would you do all these things? You know, was your plan just not well thought out or... You know, were you just that raisin that you, how close can I get to being caught or what was it? Like, what kind of thought processes are going through? And even though Rebecca's family explained Larry's muddy footprints to the police, nothing ever came of it. But Rebecca's family wasn't worried yet. They thought Larry was a weirdo, but they assumed that he was just harmless. Still, Rebecca's dad knew that Larry just wasn't right. He definitely said a couple things about something's wrong with that guy, but it was never like creepy to that point, you know, like it was more like maybe he's got some weird, you know, infatuation. You know, he thought that guy robbed our house, but never to the degree of he's got a plan with this stuff. You know, it was more like some sick infatuation going on and keep this guy away from us. But nothing to that extreme, right? Like that, that would happen. But things escalated even further when Rebecca had yet another concerning encounter with Larry. He was getting bolder and trying to get Rebecca and her siblings alone, if you can believe this. And by the grace of God or call it sheer luck or whatever you believe in, Rebecca's parents somehow knew what no one else did. Don't trust Larry Morgan. That same summer, Our dog got hit by a car, and he came to our house, Larry did, and knocked on our door. My dad wasn't home. It was just my mom, and there's five of us kids. And he he said, hey, your dog got hit. Would you want to run him to the vet, and I can stay home with the kids? I'm not sure what caused my mom to be like, oh, I'll just take them with me, and I'll take the dog to the vet, you know, as opposed to just like, oh, here's this guy that we know he's our neighbor, but he also like has been away from home for a while. He's also in his 30s and, you know, just something like to her told her not not to let him stay there. In the panic of it, you know, she could have been like, oh, thank you. I'm going to run to the vet real quick with him and the, the dog. And she thinks he ran over the dog to try to do something, but obviously we don't know any of that. So obviously we're with Rebecca's mom. Larry definitely hit their dog with the car on purpose as part of some horrific elaborate plan. And even as Rebecca was talking to me about this, I was like, oh my God, you're thinking what I'm thinking. She's like, yeah, he did it. I'm like, I know. Yeah. And it was, I got goosebumps. And I, (sighs) that's how far these people are willing to go to try to just manipulate and, and gain access. Because I, my personal theory was that he wouldn't have done something on that day. That was just to win trust. Yeah. So then he could, cause like, obviously he would have gotten caught that day. Yeah. This was to win trust so that next time he pops over, it's not so weird and he can be more chummy. And like, eventually he'll learn the routines and it was a complete ruse and the dog suffered. And that's 
so disgusting. And it's so chilling to think that, you know, I'm sure Rebecca's parents, once they realized Larry was to blame for this, they realized that what could have happened to Anna Marie could have happened to their daughters. It was a close call and it still is giving me the chills. They're still in shock that, not shock, but like disbelief that this happened and it could have been my kids. I just remember one time him making a comment about he could have gotten our girls. This guy could have done that. You know, it could have been a really big possibility. I do remember like it hitting my parents. It could have been our little girls. On January 12th, 1995, after deliberating for three hours and 45 minutes, the jury found Larry Lane Morgan guilty of first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and first-degree sexual abuse. Larry received three life sentences without the possibility of parole. Later, Larry successfully removed the charge of first-degree sexual abuse because that was technically covered in the kidnapping charge. But all of his other appeals were denied, and he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. Larry couldn't receive the death penalty because Iowa abolished it in 1965. But as a result of Larry's disgusting crimes and Anna Marie's high-profile case, many Iowans believe that the death penalty should be reinstated. Anna Marie's family became unofficial spokespeople for the pro-death penalty movement. It's clear that Anna Marie's murder tugged on the heartstrings of the entire state of Iowa, and Rebecca's family was no different. Like so many others, their lives were forever affected by Larry's decision to brutally rape and murder Anna Marie. To this day, Rebecca's family is still processing Anna Marie's death in their own way, and it's tough for her parents to talk about. Rebecca was just a kid when everything happened, so as she's become an adult and a mother, she has seen the situation in a brand new light. Nobody talked about it for a while. I remember that. And then I was the youngest in the family. So, you know, maybe my older siblings did. And then if I came in, people were quiet or something like that. My parents are still kind of quiet about it all. You know, their generation, you don't talk about stuff like this. Like, I think my mom, she's just so thankful that we're okay, but also like so much feeling for that family. Like, just can't believe that this happened. I don't think it really hit me until I was in my 20s in college. And it's still like, I can't believe this happened. You know, as a young kid, you don't process it. Probably even again now that I have children processing it in a different light than I did back then or even in my 20s. And just as the little town of Brighton became more wary, Rebecca remembers her parents changing their parenting style for her and her siblings after Anna Marie's murder. I remember them being way more cautious with us after that. They were outside with us when we were playing. We never had sleepovers or a lot of things like that growing up, but it was definitely more cautious after that. Today, Rebecca is a big believer in paying close attention to your surroundings. You never know what you might see. Her parents trusting their gut about their creepy neighbor may have been the difference between life and death. That sense of awareness or that just your gut instinct that even my my dad had and passed on to my mom about this guy, like to trust that feeling you have. I mean, I call the non-emergency police quite often when I see people that just aren't right. It's probably a little annoying when I do it, but I'm like, just something is wrong with this person. And if you don't feel like something's right to say something and trust your gut and pay attention to what's going on, not that that always makes a difference, but there's something about that. Like, don't just brush it off. Pay attention to what's going on. Just like Rebecca said, we have to listen to our instincts. That little tug in your gut that says, this person is not what they seem. That's what you have to listen to. But what about when our instincts are wrong? What then? One of the first lessons we teach our children is to stay away from adults they don't know. At its core, stranger danger is the simplest version of trust your instincts. It makes sense even to young children. I don't know you, so you could hurt me. But how can we warn our children about our relatives, our coworkers, our friends of the family? In order to survive, to remain sane, we have to believe these people won't hurt us because it's overwhelming and sickening to think otherwise, to wonder constantly if every person we trust is actually even trustworthy. But the truth is that sometimes our instincts are 100% wrong, and we may be trusting someone that we shouldn't. A huge thank you to Rebecca and our friend Madeline. Madeline, you have referred us to 
first degree stories in the last couple months. And you're this like unknown phantom angel of the first degree. And we love you and appreciate you so much because it's people like you who recommend our show and help connect us with people with these really compelling stories that make this show possible. So Madeline, thank you so much. And uh, of course, thank you to Rebecca. And if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, or obviously if you know somebody else that has a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group, join our Patreon. We're posting a lot of fun video content. They're starting tomorrow and stick around tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Another amazing episode. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, Legal Information Institute, New York Times, United Press International, Iowa City Press Citizen, Ancestry, Fine a Grave, The Moscatine Journal, The Courier, Sioux County Journal, The Gazette Daily, Iowan, Weekly World News, Google Books, AP News, The Des Moines Register and Dispatch. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source.